0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November twenty eighth, two thousand fourteen. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories. And then we hear from Eric Hand on one of the most valuable finds in the world of meteorite trading. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, he's the editor for our online daily news site, and he's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how bacteria affect the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is a blessing and a curse. This tightly controlled border protects the brain from many dangerous things circulating in our blood, but it also makes diseases of the brain very difficult to treat because it can exclude drugs and other molecules that would be helpful. Now it turns out our friendly resident bacteria have a role to play in this drama. Dave, why did someone think these bugs had something to do with our brains?
1: Well, the first evidence came in 2001. Researchers discovered that microbes in the gut activate genes that code for what are called gap junction proteins. These are proteins that are kind of like the rivets in the cell wall. They're really helpful for building the gut wall. And without these proteins, the pathogens, the bad guys that live in your gut, can leak out into the bloodstream and cause disease, even potentially death.
0: And so that's not something we want to happen to our brain either.
1: That's right, because the brain also has this very impermeable barrier. Some things can get through it, but obviously you don't want – you want to be very selective about what gets into your brain. So this blood-brain barrier is incredibly important for keeping the bad things out.
0: So our brain also benefits from having these tight junction proteins to seal out the bad guys. And in this most recent research, they looked at how the brain's tight junctions might be affected by our microbes. How do they do that?
1: Well, they looked at mice, and what they did was they raised some mice so that they would be in a very sterile environment, an environment that newborn mice wouldn't be able to accumulate a lot of the microbes that live in our body, they compared these mice to mice that have been raised in a fairly standard environment. And what they found was that the mice that had been raised in the sterile environment and ostensibly had a lot fewer of these gut microbes also had a much leakier blood brain barrier. In fact, when the team injected these mice with antibodies, which are actually fairly large molecules, some of these antibodies are actually able to cross over into the brain across this barrier.
0: And why do they think this might be happening? The bacteria themselves are not glomming on and protecting the brain, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Right. The bacteria actually seem to be secreting something. Researchers suspect that they are secreting energy-laden molecules called short-chain fatty acids. And indeed, what the team found was that when they injected some of these fatty acids into mice that had a leaky blood-brain barrier, the blood-brain barrier became a lot tighter and less permeable.
0: I know this hasn't been tested in humans, but what are some of the implications if this is going on in people?
1: Well, one of the big concerns for people is that when the fetus is forming, its blood-brain barrier is also forming. And so there's a concern if the mother takes a lot of antibiotics during pregnancy that she's potentially wiping out a lot of these microbes that live in the fetus and that the fetus will not be able to build a proper blood-brain barrier. Now, this is all very speculative at this point.
0: Next up, we have a story on something called the icepocalypse.
1: <laughs> What's an
0: icepocalypse, Dave?
1: An icepocalypse, at least the one that Hit a remote arctic mining outpost in svalbard norway in 2012 is a very bad scene here's some of the stuff that happened rain fell during a period of the year where rain is not supposed to fall this was a uh, two weeks in january and february where you should be getting snow rain fell and it basically coated this entire region with ice sometimes ice as thick as 20 centimeters. This had a very dramatic impact on the region. The ice-forced road closures caused a slush avalanche consisting of snow, ice, and slush that destroyed a pedestrian bridge. The town's central antenna was disabled, halting radio transmissions. Icy runway meant that flights could not take off or land. And one of the most dramatic impacts was actually on the reindeer because the ice prevented the animals from digging through the snow to eat the plants they eat in the winter. And scientists found high numbers of carcasses in various regions of the area, suggesting that a lot of these animals had died because of the thick ice.
0: Now this, as you said, is not something that's supposed to happen. You expect snow in the Arctic in January. Do they think that there is a link with climate change?
1: The weather was a lot warmer than it should have been this time of the year, but they ran some climate models and they predicted that these types of events, which they call ice on snow events, are actually predicted to become much more of a problem for this region as the world continues to warm.
0: Does this have a bigger effect, you know, beyond the local community and the reindeer population?
1: Well, the indigenous people depend on snowy tundra ecosystems and their wildlife to get by. But also ice storms could wreak havoc on shipping, mining, and fossil fuel industries, especially if they develop in high latitudes. So, so this is a problem that can have global implications.
0: Lastly, we have a story on how likely life is in other galaxies. In a galaxy far, far away, there may not be as much life <laughs> as we once thought. Some researchers are now claiming that only 10% of the estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe can play host to life. Why such dour numbers, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, the problem has to do with something called gamma ray bursts. And there are two types of gamma ray bursts. The first is pretty short. It lasts just a second or two. And they most likely occur when two neutron stars or black holes spiral into each other. But there's also long gamma ray bursts that last for tens of seconds and occur when massive stars burn out, collapse, and explode. They're rarer than the shorter ones, but they release roughly 100 times as much energy. And those are the ones we're worried about.
0: These are basically death rays from the sky?
1: Kind of, although they don't uh, exact their death rayitude (laughs) via vaporizing life on, on a planet. What they do, rather, is they actually set up a chain of chemical reactions that can destroy the ozone layer in a planet's atmosphere. And without the ozone, that planet gets a lot more UV radiation, which can kill most, if not everything, on the planet's surface.
0: Well, has the Earth ever been exposed to a long gamma-ray burst?
1: Yeah, some astronomers actually think there was about a 50% chance. In fact, it's speculated that one of Earth's biggest extinctions, which happened about 450 million years ago, which wiped out 80% of Earth's species, may have been caused by gamma-ray bursts.
0: And how about the rest of the universe? Are all the galaxies out there and planets that are inside of them exposed to an equal level of risk as the Earth?
1: No, it's not. It really depends on where these bursts happen, how dense the stars are near the bursts. For example, if you're talking about galactic centers where the stars tend to be much more closely packed, anything within about 6,500 light years of galactic center, the researchers estimate, have had a 95% chance of having suffered a lethal gamma ray blast in the last billion years or so. But even in other parts of the galaxy and in, other, in, in different types of galaxies, the odds can really change depending on the local environment. And the overall take home message is of the hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe, only about one in 10 can support complex life thanks to gamma ray bursts.
0: Okay. Just a little bit of optimistic thinking here. Just because these things kill us and our closely related planet mates doesn't mean that completely novel life wouldn't adapt or even thrive on it.:
1: Yeah and you know and again you know Earth was hit by a gamma-ray burst at least scientists suspect 50 percent chance hit by a gamma-ray burst sometime in our past and we're still here so potentially these bursts are not always lethal and potentially they lead to the evolution of new amazing life like ourselves) <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a murder mystery involving gray seals. Also a story about what dogs hear when they hear us talk. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about what U.S. President Barack Obama's executive order last week affecting immigration, what impact that will have on science in the U.S., Also a story about a new phase in the Ebola war. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Many planetary scientists would like to see a sample return mission from Mars. This is when a robot is sent to the red planet, goes down to the surface, picks up rocks and dust and dirt, brings it back to Earth where scientists can then analyze the return sample. But as there are no definite plans for such a mission at this time, a unique meteorite that originated on Mars may be the next best thing. I spoke with scientist Eric Hand, who got to see some specimens from the so called Black Beauty meteorite up close. He starts with a trip to a big vault full of space rocks.
2: So it was a really, uh, a real treat to visit J. Piatek in his Indianapolis, Indiana clinic and to get to see these rocks firsthand. It might be overstating it to call it a vault because really this is just his weight loss clinic. On the outskirts of Indianapolis, and just a securely locked room within his clinic that's just cluttered, just chock full of rocks from all over the solar system.
0: So it looks more like a maybe a lab or a collector, or room. just
2: a really cluttered closet.
0: The star of this man's collection is Black Beauty, basically a piece of Mars that got here somehow. So how did it get here, and how did he get it? into his hands.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a complicated, winding story. I mean, first it had to get from Mars to Earth, and that meant that this ancient rock had to be knocked off the surface of Mars so hard that it escaped Mars's gravity. Then it had to get sucked into Earth's gravity. Then it had to fall to Earth, survive that fiery plunge. Then someone had to find it.
0: And where did they find it?
2: Yeah. So it sat in the desert of the Western Sahara in Morocco for who knows how long. You know, people say probably couldn't have survived for more than a thousand years. So probably sometime in the last thousand years it fell. And a few years ago, a nomad picked it up, passed up through the chain of several Moroccan meteorite dealers and finally into the hands of JP Tech.
0: And it's pretty shocking in its value, more than its weight in gold.
2: Yeah, this is not only arguably the most important meteorite from Mars, but it's also one of the most expensive meteorites In existence right now, depending on the size of the piece that's up for sale, $10,000 per gram. Just for comparison, gold trades for about $40 a gram.
0: This person who owns this rock is not a scientist, but somehow we know a lot about it through science. How can the scientists get a piece of a rock like this if it costs so much on the market?
2: Well, one way they can get a piece is they can buy a sliver on the open market. Scientists don't need huge pieces. They can get away with doing analyses on little slivers, you know, less than a gram even. They can trade. J. Piotek is doing a lot of trades with big institutional collections. So he'll give up a piece of Black Beauty in return for 10 or 20 other interesting meteorites. And then the third way is actually to get these meteorites officially classified. The dealers and collectors have to turn over a piece to science. And the, the rule of thumb is 20% or 20 grams, whichever is less.
0: Okay, so there's kind of a backdoor way of getting a meteorite.
2: Yeah, definitely scientists want to get their hands on this, and it's a challenge, but there's plenty of material to go around, and this system does seem to benefit everyone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So despite being in the hands of a private citizen, Black Beauty has been subject to analysis. Can you run down the most important stats that we've learned about it so far?
2: Well, there's a lot of things about it, and and they're also still learning. But, you know, I think first you start with its age. This is the oldest meteorite from Mars, 4.4 billion years old. That's older than any Earth rock.
0: How can it be older than an Earth rock?
2: No, there are no Earth rocks that old because on Earth you have plate tectonics, which is constantly churning and recycling the Earth's crust. And so there are no Earth rocks older than about 4.1 billion. And so here we have a Mars rock on Earth that's older than any Earth rock.
0: So in addition to its age, the composition of Black Beauty is really unusual.
2: Yeah, it's chock full of water. It's got about 10 times more water than trapped in its minerals than any other Mars meteorite. And it also looks to be sedimentary in origin. So that means that the individual pieces within the meteorite, the rocks within it, you know, it's kind of a rock made of rocks, are sedimentary clasts. And that's really important from an astrobiological perspective.
0: How big is Black Beauty altogether? Do we know? And what does it look like?
2: There's been about nearly 20 pieces found in the desert, totaling maybe about two kilograms of material, all told. JPL Tech has the biggest piece, what they call the main mass, and that's half a kilogram, 525 grams. And, you know, there could be more, in the sand there. But believe me, people have gone looking yeah. and it's been quiet for about a year. And so most people suspect, given that, you know, that that part of the desert has been flooded with hunters combing the desert, you know, by hand, that we found them all at this point.
0: And this is all pretty recent findings, right? Even though he had it for a couple of years, not everyone was positive that it was from Mars for a while.
2: Yeah. So Jay got it in 2011. But it took almost a year before they could confirm that it was Martian in origin and you know, another year before the first publication in Science Magazine came out. So there is a long period of uncertainty. But as as people became clued in to the the fact that this probably came from Mars, the value of it kept going up and up and up, and more and more people kept going to the desert to look for more.
0: And it's called Black Beauty because it's all black.
2: Yeah, its exterior, especially the the fusion crust on the outside of this rock, is just. Someone says it said it looked like asphalt. Someone said it looked like it got painted black. It's just this really delicate, shiny scaly, deep black color. Inside, though, it's this wonderful amalgam of different textures and different minerals. It's actually called a breccia, which is a rock made of rocks.
0: So you mentioned in passing that there might be astrobiological results to draw from this. Is that something that's still being investigated?
2: Oh, yeah. And, and you have to be really careful here. I mean, in 1996, probably the second most famous or, or until now the most famous Martian meteorite, this one called Alan Hills, scientists came out and said that, oh, there's fossilized bacteria in this rock and and that's been a controversial result that's never been confirmed and and it caused a lot of turmoil this rock has the potential to perhaps trap and preserve organic molecules they haven't found anything so far but they are just beginning to look and There's a lot of good nooks and crannies in this rock to look for.
0: I thought it was really interesting that you wrote that it matches up pretty well with what the landers on Mars are seeing.
2: That's right. There's only about 75 Martian meteorites in existence here on Earth. All of them make no sense when you compare their chemistry to what the the rovers and orbiters at Mars are finding. Black Beauty, though, matches perfectly.
0: Very cool. This whole story is, you know, we're just talking mostly about the science and the meteorite, but it's actually all about people who obsessively, I might say, try to obtain a variety of meteorites or all of a certain kind of meteorite. How does the existence of meteorite hunters impact the science There's researchers involved. There's hunters involved. There's all these institutions that are collecting and trading these things. Does it slow things down or does it actually help?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a robust ecosystem. And I think in my story, I described it as symbiotic. I think the scientists wouldn't get a hold of these important meteorites if there wasn't a market for them with collectors. And if that didn't induce hunters to go spend inordinate amount of time... In, in hospital places looking for things in the sand that don't belong.
0: Are there certain meteorites that collectors have that scientists haven't gotten a crack at?
2: Very few. Again, in order to get an official classification, which increases the value of a meteorite, the collectors have to go to a scientific institution to get it confirmed. And in doing that, they have to give up a little piece of it. Plus, these scientists, especially at the big institutions, have huge collections that they can use as trade material. So they usually find a way to get what they want.
0: All right, Eric. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, sir. Eric Hand writes about the Black Beauty meteorite in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's A A-A-A-S A join This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice?